Hello and welcome to another episode of Wind Your Neck In. And if you didn't know by now, I'm your host, Niall Annett. Many thanks for tuning in and a quick plug as always. Please head over to social media channels and give us a follow and make sure whatever format you're listening uh, to this episode on, you give us a, a subscribe so you don't miss an episode ever. This week, uh, it's great to be able to welcome a guest a lot closer to home than in the re- than the most recent episodes. Um, born and raised in the Worcestershire area, we welcome Ollie Lawrence to the show. Ollie, great to have you on and thanks for taking the time, mate. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm all good. Thank you very much for having me on. It's uh been long overdue <laughs> yeah you've been hounding yeah, me no, for an so episode for for ages haven't you <laughs> every week mate every week Just yeah all the way all the way around all the way around you've been putting me through to your manager your agent or who knows what <laughs> no I'm stitching, I'm stitching you up um, no it is it's great to get you on because um i'm gonna i'm gonna say plenty of things about you through this episode um most are going to be very complimentary, but all are going to be, it's all going to be very honest. So I think it's great to get you on because you've got a big future uh, ahead of you in a rugby context and in a non-rugby context. And I'm just, gl- I'm gl- glad to be able to to get you on at the early stages of that. So thanks for jumping on, mate. I'm um, glad to be on, glad to have a little chat with you in now. Yes, exactly. So the first thing we'll get out there is if I rese- if I do refer to you as Snee at any stage, right, I need to put some context on that because people are going to be like, nah, I've lost the plot even more than I already have. So alter ego, Snee, young Snee. Do you want to give any context to it or are we happy just to go to the fact that your nickname's Snee? Uh, no, I'll give a bit of context to it. So basically there was, um, so uh, these obviously there was a song by um, Michael DePire called man's not hot i'm not going to give the rendition of it because I don't please think do I did go on this. two plus two is three uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's basically yeah along the lines of of that song too. yeah blah, blah blah and then basically me and a guy called zach Rupert who used to be at worcester yeah um we obviously we basically just <laughs> basically we just sing it to each other like all the time when it came out and then yeah. there was like a lyric in it when it goes like two plus two is four minus one that's secret mouse every day man's on the block smoke trees see your gun oh my god <laughs> you go quite like that your girl is looking and then it used to go like hold tight asni he's got a pumpy but basically when he went hold tight asni he's got a pumpy we just like for some reason would always like break out laughing every time and then we always yeah. used to go to each other like hold tight asni and then from that <laughs> I think boys just started like hearing like asni, but they wouldn't hear the ass, so they just hear the snee. Snee. So then, like when I'd see Zach, I'd be like, "All right, all right, snee." And then basically from then on, he was like, he was like, we would just call each other snee. And then after a while, like he would just permanently call me snee and Ollie. Yeah. And then I would call him like Droops or Zach, and then he just carry on calling me snee. And then Mm. basically from then on, boys started catching on to it, and then from now on, I was just snee. And then recently, um. I probably about six months ago changed my like when we the new Call of Duty came out when you could change your name I just put it to the young Sneer. Yeah. Um and then he was like big Sneer and I was young Sneer. Um and then basically that's where it started so it's that unbelievable is the, the, the true story behind young Sneer. Do you know I've been calling you Sneer for like 
<clears throat> I would say I've been calling you Snee for about a year and a half now, and that's the first time, even longer probably, and that's the first time I've heard the full story. So it's nice to get some context on it. For anyone who listens to this, you'll probably get Ollie, all Snee, who knows what, but um, we are referring <laughs> to you. So let's uh, let's give some context on what we're hoping to chat through all. Like the, the whole general context of this is it's a great opportunity for people who listen to this of which there will be hopefully thousands um to tens of thousands to get a great insight into you as a person you as a, a rugby player is is important but you as a person is is as important for me so we'll look at um you as a bloke your career to date because it's a short one but it's full of plenty of events we'll look to the future um, what you hope to achieve, what you think's out there for you to achieve, and then the experiences that you've had to date that drive you, um, which I think is a really important motive for um, professional sportsmen in general. Okay, does that sound all right? Yeah, that's all good with me. Sounds good. All right, let's 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 get off to it then because my first interactions with uh, Ollie Lawrence, aka Snee, is that there was like this hype built up about um, I know some of this is difficult for you to talk about, but the, the, you're mature enough to discuss that there, at a period there was Twitter videos flying about, there was uh, Facebook videos flying about of you playing uh, for your school team, Bromsgrove, right? So there's already this hype being built up of you as a, as a young man, no doubt headed towards professional rugby. How did it feel for you whenever you were in that environment where people are pumping your arms massively? And to be honest, at that stage, you've done the square root of fuck all. So do you, do you at that stage, you've got good family around you. I know your dad well. Um, he's, he's such a good man and he's probably trying to keep your feet on the ground. Or did you feel like that was quite easy and natural for you to do at that stage whilst people are trying to build you up to, to more than you have achieved at that stage? Um. I think it was a mixture of both. I think it was one of those it was one of those things where I knew that once I started seeing those videos and stuff come out, there would obviously be more recognition for me as a player when either playing against like school teams or I guess even coming into Worcester. Um, but I never ever thought of it like that at the time. I kind of I wouldn't say I ignored it, but like it just didn't mean anything to me. Like I just saw it as like, oh, this just happens to every player when they're up and coming, like people always putting out videos about them saying this person's going to be the next the next big thing or this person's this, this person's that. I just, I kind of saw it as like everyone had an opinion. Um, and I think back then I was naive to it because like I would be naive to the fact that people would also have the opposite opinion. Mm. Um, but like, I guess back then when, so I think the, the first video I ever saw uh, of myself, like kind of like a, I guess a highlight reel-esque was back when after I played England 16s. So back then for me, like there wasn't as much like social media, like hype and stuff like that. Yeah. There was still quite a lot, but not as much as there is nowadays. Um, so like in terms of like backlash or, hey, I didn't really see any of it. It was kind of just all positive things. So mm. for me, I guess the easiest way to say that is I kind of just took it in my stride. I just took it for what it was. It was basically people just retweeting or posting videos of me playing rugby. And at the time, I just, as like a 17, I'd have been 16, 17 year old. I just saw it as one of those things where like, oh, it's pretty cool. Like, you get like a, a social media following from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see it as a negative thing. I just saw it as people just, you know, just the rugby, the rugby world out there just taking recognition of a younger player. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the things you were doing as a kid, like they deserve recognition. I just think um, 
you know, there was a couple of players that that were pumping around at that stage, and the two that stand out were you and Alfie Barbary, um, obviously a similar enough age, and they're the two that you've seen people like really get behind. And in fairness, now now with hindsight, we look at what you've gone on to achieve, which is which is a fraction of what you will go on to achieve. Um, the the intent to pump you up was completely justified. I wonder with the with the family and people that you've got around you. What sort of ways did you go around counteracting that going to your head? Um, did you try and protect yourself from it? Or like you said, was it just accept it and try and treat it as a norm? Um, I think at first, like I tried to just accept it. But then once I started becoming like probably in my lower sixth year or maybe in my upper sixth year at school, I kind of started to ignore it because it was one of those things where like people would like keep going on about it and like people would repost old videos and be like, this is what he did when he was a couple of years ago. And then it's kind of, it kind of became a frustration for like, well, this is where I'm at now. Like that was two years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And I saw it from perspective, whereas if I was seeing a video of someone else from two years ago, I'd be like, well, that was two years ago. Like what about now? Um, So I guess for me, I didn't see it as pressure. I just saw it as an opportunity. Um, I saw it as an opportunity for like everyone to see what I was like two years ago. And then it would always be a motivator, the motivational like factor to kind of push me to keep, keep being that, that X factor that people would see in these videos. Yeah. Keep doing those, like those cool moments in games and keep pushing myself to, to be better and better. So that means then it would continue to happen. And I'd, I'd keep progressing in the way that I wanted to progress within my rugby because I think it wasn't until I was probably six, 15, 16 that I kind of decided that rugby was the path I wanted to choose. Um, I played obviously quite a few sports growing up. So for me, um, once I'd chosen to play rugby, it was kind of when that happened and all that, all the videos and the hype, I guess, started. Um, it was just one of those things that I kind of tried to ignore. Like all my friends would see it and send it to me and be like, oh, this is so cool. Like, look who shared this, look who retweeted this blah 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 um and for me at the time i just like kind of just laugh about it but like oh yeah that's 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 crazy that's weird like no one ever kind of expected it especially from my school friends from from when i was like 11 12 because we grew up together we never kind of expected that to kind of happen and yeah um i think they always kind of acknowledged that i was i was an athletic person i was kind of one of those kids that was just seemed to take to all sports um but then i guess with, with social media and so many people seeing it it kind of just flew off and went to another level. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think one of the things, um, before we move on to the social media side of it, I think let's talk early sports then, because could we have lost you as a rugby as a rugby playing sport? Could we have lost you to a different sport at one stage? Was it like you rock around in your Chelsea top quite a bit? Could we have seen uh, Ollie Lawrence, the centre attacker midfielder for Chelsea? Or what was the chosen sport that you think you know you could have progressed in? I definitely would have stayed at centre attacking midfield on pro clubs, but I don't think in real life that would have been the progression for me. Mate, if you um, played if you played centre attacking midfield in pro like in real life, like you played in pro clubs, you'd have been playing for I don't know whatever the lowest league. You'd have been Sunday league. To me. <laughs> I know I was uh, I was constantly running around the field. <laughs> Cent- centre exactly centre attacking midfield slash right wing slash left back slash centre mid slash left forward like whatever you wanted anyway right what was the what was the the, the, the other sports so growing up oh, I always played football um, football rugby and cricket were the, the three sports I probably always played growing up from probably about I think maybe five six seven started doing like tag rugby and then I'd play football at school and cricket at school 
Um, and then I was fortunate enough to play um, club football and then managed to get into an academy. Um, I played at Birmingham City where I started when I was probably eight. Um, I played for them for a couple of years and then I went to play for Aston Villa when I was 10, probably 10 and a half, 11. And then for me, it was kind of, it was one of those things where I was going to a school which didn't really play football. They were mainly rugby and cricket based. Um, and kind of like my my passion, I'd say, for football kind of went. When I was younger, I was like really energetic, loved doing it. And like I was I was pretty I was pretty good at it. Um, but the way the academies were at that age, I don't think I was ready for that environment. Yeah. Um, I didn't take that sport as seriously as let's say other other players would have done because it was their only sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where I kind of left that left that chapter, closed that chapter even. Um, and then moved on to when I went to Old Twinford um, for secondary school. That's when I really started playing rugby and cricket uh, kind of properly. Um, why do they, playing, before, you, before you go, why do they always add old onto everything over here in England? It's like every rugby club's <laughs> old something. <laughs> every school's like old. I think it's just because it's so old. <laughs> yeah, it might be because of the age. I mean, the name gives it away, but they they just smash old in front of everything. Old rubber ducky yeah, ends, you know so what I mean? True, actually. But so so you go from old what did you say? Old I went to Old Swinford, yeah. Old Swinford, and then where does the progression to Bromsgrove come? Because that seems like a big step for you in terms of uh, your rugby. So that was at 16. Okay. So I went to Bromsgrove for sixth form. Um, which is interesting because I would never have left Old Swinford if they had given me a sports scholarship for sixth form. Wow. But I didn't get the sports scholarship. Wow. That is a and hell still of to a this mess day, I do not know the reason why. Well, whoever makes I've that decision. Because I never wanted to. Because I was like, I look back on it now and like, I have no regrets, but it would have been, I would have been, I'd be in de- a very different position right now if I'd never taken that scholarship to go to Bromsgrove. I wouldn't in what way? be where I was now. Um, so probably by the time I, so when I joined Old Swinford, they were a big rugby school. Like they were in the Daily Mail, like finals, semi-finals, like for a couple of years, they were a big rugby school. As I started coming through, like the rugby kind of took more of a backseat and then the education was more of a, a driver at the school. They wanted to become a more academic school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I was like 15, 16, I was playing like county. I was involved. That's when I first started with Worcester in the academy at 15. Um, and for me, I got to 16 and I remember I kind of, I kind of found things quite easy, um, at school level. Um, I didn't really find it that difficult. And I think that kind of, it kind of made me take things for granted, I guess, and probably slack a bit, um, Mm. when it came to games or training, just because, because I never really had a challenge. Like I never really found stuff like really difficult um, at that level. And then obviously when I was applying in my final year in year 11 to go for a sports scholarship, I kind of thought it would be a given. Yeah. Um, I still did all like the sports scholarship tests and I was, um, as far as I'm aware, I was all good in all of them. And obviously they knew my background because I've been at the school five years. Um, and then I was told I wasn't going to be getting a scholarship. Um, and then, back when I was a little 16 year old, had a bit of a paddy um, and I decided to <laughs> stop playing, stop playing rugby for the, uh, for the, um, 
for the first team and went to do football instead. <laughs> so I started playing like the football, like the social football school, um, which was quickly kicked out of me by my academy coach, who yeah. then was realizing that I I needed to be continue playing rugby if I wanted to. <laughs> Thank goodness you did. Academy. Yeah, um, and then I played a bit more. Um, kind of was a bit frustrated because obviously I wasn't going to be staying on. And then obviously the opportunity came around to uh, Bromsgrove asked me if I wanted to go for a trial day as a scholar there. Um, and then I found that I'd be going to Bromsgrove as long as I got all the GC results that I needed to get. Um, turns out I actually didn't need to get them, but they told me I did need to get them. So Good. I'm probably more of an educational driver. Psych- psychological. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, I moved on to, to Bromsgrove and that's really where I kind of kick-started on, I guess, the the very, very start of my young rugby career. Yeah, so I mean, the the, the recognition you had at Bromsgrove, we've discussed, I think the social media aspect of it is something that's always very interesting. Um, like I mentioned, you had good people around you to control that e- that ego that we all have. Um, we'll get to the social media ins and outs a bit later on, but I think the progression in towards the Worcester Warriors setup is an important one because uh, November 17, you make your Anglo-Welsh debut. It's against the Seal Sharks. I mean, that was your first dip into pro rugby and inverted commas. Were you, tell me this, like I couldn't remember for the life of me when researching this, but were you still in school when you played that game? Uh, yes. Yeah, I knew so I, I was. I was. I was seventeen when I played that game. Yeah, and which is which is berserk. Yeah, I think now looking back on it, like now seeing other people around me, like all the young boys coming through, and thinking, I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine them playing for us like in a prem cup at still in school. Uh, so now looking back, it, it seems like kind of strange, but I guess the strangest part of it was when I first joined at Old Swinford. Uh, they got to the final of the of the Daymail Cup and the captain of the team was Max Bellin. Oh, no way. Um, and he was like, basically the guy I idolised at school because he was like yeah. first team, first team captain, best rugby player, was going to Worcester. Yeah. He was one of the, uh, one of the, like the prefects at school. Crazy. Basically like looked up to him. And then I came on for my Anglo Welsh debut and subbed with Max. Um, Crazy. And then... Yeah, and then I was just, like so nervous. Like I remember coming on because obviously first time I played in like in front of so many like thousands of people. Um, and then yeah, luckily the uh, an opportunity came about very early on in the game. Um, after a couple of minutes being on, I managed to sneak over just about onto the try line. And then I remember my friends being in the stand because they were there for my first game. Yeah, and like I looked up to them, and then all of the nerves went. There was not one part of me that was nervous for the rest of that game. I was yeah. just kind of in the moment just even to this day the only thing I remember is scoring that try and then looking up to my to my mates and remembering seeing them there and cheering me on which was which was pretty special to be honest yeah it's a class memory and it is that it was the beginning of a very um dynamic match that you played that day I remember you getting the ball like I didn't play that game probably out injured at that stage no doubt no me I think um I remember you getting the ball and it just being like even at 17, like just scattering bodies when you carried. And um, there was very clear ability. But I think when you look at your progression into that Worcester f- setup f- as a full-timer, right? Um, I mean, we've we've laughed about this loads of times, right? And you know exactly what's coming, okay? But we've laughed about this lo- <laughs> We've laughed about this loads of times because 
I was really honest with you one day when I said to you that when you joined the Worcester Academy, right, every part of me wanted to dislike you. Yeah, everyone was the same. <laughs> and there was definitely like this, there's like this like awkward feeling about anyone who enters the academy that anyone thinks is going to be too big for their bones. It doesn't matter really about how good they are, but if they think they're going to be too big um, and their ego is going to be too big, there's like a reluctancy to warm to them. And I promise you after a week I was gone. Like I thought, nah, I can't, I can't hate this kid. I absolutely adored you straight away because <laughs> the facade and the, the um, external perception is so wrong. It really is so wrong because just just how you are as a person, actually more yeah. introverted than extroverted, and that's why I think yeah. this episode is really interesting for for people to listen to. This like perception. Uh, trust me, like I desperately wanted to dislike you, and actually after a week, I'm a. I like to think I'm a decent judge of character, and after a week, I decided I couldn't, I couldn't dislike someone who didn't deserve to be disliked. So. You're, you've integrated into the Worcester Academy. You're around all the senior boys. How do you feel as a young man? How do you feel as um, someone who's dreamt of doing this? You've swapped, you've subbed for Max Delling, and now you're here. What's the, What's it like for you? Um, I guess it is weird because I think I was more nervous on my debut than I was walking into the club on the very first day when I moved to Worcester. Yeah. I think for me... It was um, it's a weird one because I I can remember my first day so well, um, but there was just like what not one part of me that like was nervous. Like I never really get too nervous about going into those sort of environments because I know that like I'm there because they see something in me to become mm -hmm. a professional player and obviously be at the club. And all the boys around me at that time, like there were so many players in that team, like Bryce, like Millsy, all these boys that were such big names, like Vinan was there at the time. That like won well, he'd he'd won a World Cup, and like for me, it was just it was just pretty amazing to be there, like and to be to be a professional rugby player, I guess. Um, going into the start of that that campaign, I think so. Before joining, so I remember, so obviously when I left school that summer, I managed to be involved with the England team. So I think going into that camp at such an early age, I was in like in awe basically. Yeah. And so like, kind of like, I guess starstruck because I never expected to be around those kind of players at such a young age. So then coming into Worcester, I kind of just had this like, I guess this kind of level of confidence where I knew that like, I was just, ready to play like I wasn't even kind of like oh, I really need to to work on this or like work on that like obviously there was things I needed to work on because I was nowhere near like ready to be starting in the premiership or anything like that but I just was had no no kind of fears or no doubts about myself or about these boys liking me or not I was just going to be myself from the start and either boys would take to me or they wouldn't like I could never control that the only thing I could control was me being myself yeah, um, and I guess that's the kind of the outlook I had on things going in from from day one. Um, was just trying to kind of just like be myself, but make the effort to get to know people at the same time. Um, not to the extent where you're you're doing everyone's head in on the first week, just trying to nod everyone <laughs> off on conversations about the things they've done and and all of this, but kind of just slowly, just like building those relationships with people because I think that's such an important part of rugby, an important part of any team team sport um, is building those relationships with people from an early age. 
um, yeah. and from the very start. Because um, I knew that was a club I, I wanted to be in. It's my home club and somewhere I've always wanted to to play. Um, so from the start, really, for me, it was kind of just, I'm here to play rugby. Let's, let's crack on. Let's get on with it. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. I think you discussed that um, that kind of call up to the training squad with Eddie Jones um, and the Senior England squad in the summer before the 2018 tour against South Africa. Like that must have been an amazing experience for you to lean on when you joined Worcester because like let's be honest joining an international squad does sit at a level above joining um, a club squad not in a disingenuous way but when you're joining the best of the best you know preparing to go tour South Africa versus joining um, a premiership club irrespective of whether you know it's a good premiership club or not it's it's a step above so did that ease your nerves slightly having had that experience of going in there? Yeah, I think definitely. I think the fact that I managed to do that, I think coming into Worcester, I kind of knew that I was able to do that at the same time. I knew I'd be able to come in and just kind of be myself because I think I took learnings from being in England. I think I was probably not myself as much because I was in so much like kind of, oh, I don't want to make any mistakes. I want to impress. Like I want to just, you know, yeah. make sure I do this, make sure I do that. I wasn't myself. So then coming back into Worcester, I wanted to make sure that I was myself. And I knew, I think, from also being involved in that camp before ever playing a premiership game, kind of I knew that people would have expectations mm-hmm. and would expect me to be very good because if I wasn't, then they'd be like, well, why the hell was this kid in the England squad? So yeah. many of the players that have played countless amount of premiership games um, and not been involved with England before, what's, what's so special about this kid? And I think the biggest thing for me was proving to people why, why I was there and, um, and kind of just getting onto the front foot as quick as possible uh, and showing people just who I am and what I stand for um, and what I can offer to the team. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you talking about stuff like, um, you know, phrases like be yourself, um, express yourself. These are all things that I hear you say on the regular um, when we just sit down for a chat or whatever. Hearing you say it now is no surprise to me, but for anyone who's listening, you know, why do you think it would be difficult for people to go into these environments or for people in professional rugby to be themselves? I mean, it's something you're quite, you're well, you're brilliant at it anyway because there's a focus on it for you. But do you feel like you play your best rugby whenever you're just Ollie Lawrence, when you act like yourself, when you have no inhibitions, when, you, when you're not trying to um, play games and do all the bullshit that comes with it? Is that something that you think sets you to a level where you can just go and compete and and be the best rugby player you can be? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think I think it's so important to be yourself because there are so many people that want to be in your position and there's so many players out there that if you just want to be like somebody else or if you're just trying to impress other people, like you're never going to get anywhere because if you're already thinking and focusing on one person's opinion, then, then that's already like a fault of yours because... One person's opinion doesn't mean the be all and end all of your career. Mm-hmm. One person's telling you you're not good enough or one person telling you that you need to do this and you need to do that. There's so many opinions out there. Um, and I think, I guess it leads on, it brings us back to those, when all that hype came around when I was younger, there was always opinions on it. And mm-hmm. I had to filter out the opinions all the time. So for me, like it was just a case of, not in a rude way, but not really giving a shit about other people's opinions. Like it was one of them where I know I know who I am as a person. Like I am who I am. 
that's something I've always lived by and I always will live by. Um, and it's something that I think is really important for, for players that come through at a young age is to just be yourself. And I understand the boys being like nervous about going into a senior environment, um, but that shouldn't take away from your game because you're there for a reason. You're not there because they just felt like picking Joe Bloggs from the streets. Like you're there because they've seen something that they clearly think you're talented in and that you can progress with. So I think people should take confidence in that. But I think I've always been a confident character and someone that has always kind of just kind of settled into environments quite easily because maybe because of my characteristics, maybe because of uh, my rugby ability, like regardless. But I think that's something that I think is really important, especially coming through um, in any environment you're in, um, in any form of form of life. I think just being yourself and kind of not worrying about other people's opinions. I know that's very easy to say from from someone who's been through it or from someone who's an experienced player or someone a coach like just but like truly actually just believing in yourself and being yourself is your biggest asset because no one can take that away from you yeah i couldn't agree more i think you are living proof that um i've seen you kind of mature over the last i would say 18 months in particular to someone who's who is living and breathing that because um your performances have matched and mirrored what your your kind of personality and how you're showing yourself on a day-to-day basis. I don't see you in England camp, but I'd imagine you're as impressive. I think the the area I'd like to kind of shimmy to now would be the kind of real first point. I mean, you played English under 18, you get called into this England camp, you play for Worcester, um, you then you played for the England under 20s whenever you were like 18 as well. But then there's a real, and not to, to degrade all those things, but the point I want to get to is that there's a point where you you kind of face your first serious setback slash um, opportunity to show resilience is, is probably a better way to show it, a better way to describe it, sorry. And I think that, ankle injury that you suffered i remember watching it on tv i was actually watching it with milsey over at his house like it was nasty um if you could give some insight into the actual injury itself and the kind of prognosis that was given at the time and then afterwards we'll we'll discuss some of the ins and outs after that yeah so in the like six nations block of the under 20s um i basically got tackled from behind um and i caught my ankle in a funny position um and then after um, going to see the specialist it turned out that I'd had a partial um, dislocation of my subtalar joint um, which caused me to tear uh, have a grade 3 tear to my CFL grade 2 to my ATFL uh, and a complete rupture of my deltoid um, usually for like an ankle injury like if you do like a deltoid or a CFL like individually it wouldn't be <laughs> as bad but I kind of did this as a, a collective um maybe it was someone showing me that maybe i needed to keep my head down a bit more um <laughs> but um yeah basically i the way i tore my deltoid i tore it at the top of the ligament which is pretty unheard of because you usually tear it at the bottom um so after like hearing from the physios and the specialist um i remember to this day i was with i think i was with pez or one, and I think Shilly, who were also going for scans in Cardiff. Um, I remember coming, going in to see um, this specialist um, and he kind of, I don't know, I just had this feeling when, so when I went in, I knew it was, I knew it was bad. Like I knew I'd potentially have to have an op on this, um, but I didn't quite prepare myself for how bad this was going to be. Um, so basically he sat down and 
took like a deep breath and I was like, all right, so he's going to tell me I'm, oh, I'm out here for a while. So he said to me, oh yeah, so you've, you've torn your, your CFL, torn your um, ATFL and you've torn your deltoid quite badly. Obviously being an 18 year old, 19 year old, I didn't really understand what that kind of meant. I kind of like, oh, I've torn some ligaments, I'll just, you know, patch them back up and I'll be back running again, you know, in a couple of months. Um, <laughs> and then um, he was like, and then he stopped and then kind of said, I'll never forget this. He was like, the area you've torn your deltoid out, I've never, ever seen before. Um, this is kind of something that would happen in a motorcycle accident if someone was hit by a car. And I was like, well, how can that be possible? I was, I was playing rugby and I got tackled from behind. Fucking hell. And it was like the amount of force that was going through my body, I've managed to completely rupture it in the wrong place. Um, and then I kind of was like, oh, that doesn't sound great. Um, but again, I was kind of like, okay, I was expecting it to be bad, but it'll be sweet. Um, and then he just l- looked me dead in the eye and was like, there's a chance that you won't play again. And I, like, I completely froze. Like I, the the next things that came out of his mouth, I wouldn't, could never re- like recollect. Like I yeah. completely zoned out then. I was like, what you, what? and then all of a sudden I came back into it and he said like, do you understand what I mean? And I was like, Sorry, like <laughs> I have no clue. Like I've just been told like after literally six months into my first season, I might not play again. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chances that, so he said there was a 25% chance I wouldn't play again. So there was, I looked at it from a perspective of this 25% chance I won't play again. And that's all I heard. I didn't mm-hmm. hear the 75% chance I would. It was just the 25% I wouldn't. Um, so he gave, obviously gave me that information. And obviously at first I kind of was like, oh yeah, cool, cool. And didn't, didn't process it. Um, and then all of a sudden he, they stopped and he was like, oh, I haven't really seen this. I'm going to have to go and see some advice with some other specialists on how to do this. Um, and then we left the room. My physio stayed and had a chat. I kind of plodded off downstairs in my boot and crutches. Uh, and then I went into the waiting area and just completely burst into tears. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the, the hardest, hardest moments of my, of my life, let alone career. Um, was hearing that um, so soon into, into my career. Um, but yeah, yeah, I guess um, it wasn't the be all and end all. But um, yeah, so I obviously went went back to Worcester. Um, obviously, the physio spoke, specialist spoke, and then I remember I was supposed I was booked in to go for my operation, and the way the guy was telling me he was going to do it was his main focus was to get me back walking, and I said, "What do you mean walking?" Like. I need to be able to run and sprint. Like my got outside, I've got outside breaks to make and, and scores exactly. to try and make. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've only been playing six months. Like, you're not going to, you're not telling me you're, you're going to try and get me walking. He's like, that's my main focus is not to get, is to get you walking again. And then obviously he told me the ins and outs of I'd have to be in the cast for 10, 11 weeks before I'd even be able to see if I'd be able to get the range back to be able to run again. Mm-hmm. So hearing all of this, the last the couple of days after, it was pretty. It was pretty dark times. Like I wasn't really prepared for what he was going to say, um, and it took me a long time to process it. Um, but I remember, I so obviously I was like, okay, sweet, I'll go and see um, 
the specialist. I'll go have the operation. Um, and I guess hope for the best. And I remember sitting down on the 4G inside the barn on the Tuesday with my operation booked for the Wednesday. Uh, and I was just talking to a couple of boys. Um, I think it was Millsy and Bryce, actually. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget this conversation. Um, he literally said to me, I told him everything about what they'd said. And they could obviously see I was in a bit of a, a, bit of a dark spot. And he was like, who did you go to see? And I obviously told him the specialist name. Um, and I was like, ah, oh. and he was like, oh, okay. He was like, have you asked for a second opinion? And I was like, nah, I didn't even think about that. I just thought like the specialist would know what he's, what he's on about. And he was like, well, I, I, I've seen James Corden before with my ankles. Uh, and I know a couple of people that have had to see him and he's the best. And I was like, well, why was to not sending me there? And he's like, oh, well, they, they use this guy as well. who's also a specialist, like really good in his field. Um, but I didn't even think to even ask for a second opinion. Literally, I think about two minutes later, our old physio, Ryan Keogh, walked past um, and I said to him, I was like, can I go and get a second opinion and see James Calder? Um, and he was like, mate, your operations, but I was like, I know, but I want to get a second opinion. Like this is, this is like a huge thing for me. It's what I want to do. So next minute on Thursday, I was down to see James Calder. Um, went to go see him was kind of because I'd already had the bad news. Um, he liaised with this other specialist and, and then he just said to me, turned around, I was like, mate, I've seen a couple of cases like this before. Um, I've done them before with artificial ligaments uh, and they've been able to carry on um, living normal life um, and been able to live an active life. And I think the fact he said they can live an active life and would be able to be back running again gave me a lot more confidence. Um, and he said to me, mate, I'll be able to fix this for you and hopefully we'll get you back out there playing in, in five to six months. Yeah. And considering I've just been told from a previous specialist that I might not play again to hear this, I was kind of a lot happier. Um, and I think you can obviously guess the decision I made yeah. um, was to go and see, go and see James Calder. Um, he managed to do the operation on the Thursday. Um, he had a slightly different way of going about the operation in terms of having me in a cast for two weeks and then, getting me in a boot for four more weeks after that um, just to get the range back um, and then yeah turns out it was um, he managed to fix me all up and I guess in a way um, he saved my career either him or, or Millsy himself Mate, Millsy's, Millsy's got shares in that place. He's had so many operations down there with those boys. No, but seriously, um, so we, we look at the the ability for a senior player to to offer advice to someone who's young and has amazing um, potential. That's very important. But I think what that opportunity allowed for you to do, Ollie, was to build a huge reservoir and reference points of resilience and character, right? And I honestly, there's no one in pro rugby who goes through it completely unscathed and through the really good times it's great to have uh, as importantly as the bad times it's great to have these these like reference points or um points in your life when you can lean on aspects of what you've been through previously which i think you've done you've done brilliantly because i remember seeing you straight after you'd seen the initial surgeon um 
whenever you think about you know anything in terms of an injured injured context how things are difficult how you have to oh do you you think like oh i have to go into the gym today do you ever find yourself leaning on the 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 moment when you were told like six months into this hyped and budding rugby career that it could be all over in in the flick of a switch yeah there's definitely times that i've thought about that whether that's been training or even just little knocks just kind of being really, like kind of even if it like you're like oh this really hurts you always think back to what actual pain is like I've never been in so much pain as to when I did my ankle and yeah. it kind of makes you realize and kind of flip out of being a bit of a softy um <laughs> I'm just going right yeah let's crack on we know we know what this is and this is, I guess yeah like you said it's the, it's the times when like you said in even in pre-seasons when you don't when you've got like such dark days I guess you think well and the same time you're thankful that you've actually got these dark days because you may not have had them again and you could have been in a completely different walk of life um so i guess the whole that whole um experience kind of is something yeah like you said i always lean back on and i'm thankful thankful for that i went through it because i wouldn't be where i am now the person i am now or the player i am now without it yeah, I just think I just think to, to kind of wrap it up from my perspective. Not that anyone cares because you're the guest, but it's important that um, people know. You know, I think your ability to lean on that's huge because I wouldn't wish it upon you. I'm, I wish it never had happened, but I think the character you've developed has just been it's been career defining for you because there's like a real hungerness, a real hungerness, a real hunger about the way you go about things now, yeah. about the way. Um, you treat your career it's almost like you you really appreciate it which i think is is a positive thing i think if we look to a strong and and brilliant recovery you had from the ankle injury obviously no issues nowadays which is fantastic i think when we flick back to that kind of worcester so you come back you um you get back playing and then you're starting to really integrate heavily in with the senior squad at worcester you're no longer um getting appearances here and there you're playing relatively week in week in uh, week out so talk to me about your short career at Worcester obviously I'm a player there with you but I think how would you describe your short career at Worcester so far um, I'd say minus, minus the injury it's been it's been pretty 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 fluid and that's probably the easy way to say it. I think it's been one of those things where I've kind of always had to just at the very start when I first came in um, I had to buy my time because I knew I knew what I had to offer and I knew the talent that I had, but it was kind of just waiting for the opportunity. I think that's or can be the case with a lot of players. Sometimes it's, you have to be patient and wait for those opportunities. Like it's not like we can just give out, they can give out appearances here and there. It's if you need, even if you're training hard and really impressing training, there's always going to be that player above you. That's got the credit in the bank, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and has got that experience that a coach is usually going to lean on because it's going to be, it's a big risk to play someone that an inexperienced player in such a, a competitive competition that we play in. Yeah. Um, so I think at the start, it was tough. Um, I had to, well, I, I say it was tough. I was very fortunate to get um, my first appearance, my premiership appearance because Exeter um, within two months of my first season at Worcester in the Academy. Um, and then managed to play all the games post that. And then, like I said, had a few bench appearances uh, for the rest of the season and then obviously did my ankle. And then I guess coming into my second season, <clears throat> that's when I really kind of kicked on, I guess. I think I was still probably third in the pe- third or fourth in the pecking order for centres. 
Um, and then it was, uh, so I think it was Wasps, Wasps at home was my first ever premiership start, mm-hmm. which was my second season. Um, was that the first, was that of, the first, that was the first game of the season at home, wasn't it? No, so I didn't play that one. It was the second, so my second year. It was the, the one, yeah, so was it post-COVID or before COVID? It had to be before this was COVID. Before COVID, yeah. So before, so this is the thing now, I kind of forget how many years I've been playing rugby now with this COVID, <laughs> kind of seems like it's taken a year away of things. Yeah, 100%. Um, but actually, um, but actually, uh, yeah, it was, my, so it was my second season, so it would have been in 20, so it have been 2020. Mm. Um, at the very start, I had my first start against Wasps. Um, and for me, like in that game, just kind of everything just went the way I would want to, would have wanted it to go. Um, I kind of got the opportunities I wanted to get in the game. I managed to score a try in the game on my first premiership start. And it was just, it was just an amazing feeling. And then I kind of had a bit of form uh, where I started all the games post that. Um, and then obviously we went into lockdown. Um, and then it was just kind of a rebuild kind of phase for me, kind of getting back, um, getting back fit again. But I think the the lockdown came at a really good time for me because it kind of put a lot of things into perspective about, again, re-emphasising how grateful we are to be in the position we are to be playing rugby. Yeah. Um, and kind of a bit of time to just kind of focus on myself, um, train the way I wanted to train, um, live my life and the way I want, I wanted to like do things on my own schedule and just really focus on myself and not worry about playing games or worried about training or anything like that. It was just purely, I would do my running, I would do my gym and I could do it on my terms. I could enjoy doing it and I could push myself as hard as I could just on my own and really just yeah. zone in on myself. And I think that was a big thing for me. And then coming out of, um, coming out of lockdown, that's I guess really where kind of things started to go. To go, to go quite well for me yeah so I think the the natural progression in the discussion Ollie is probably towards that England debut and I think 31st of October 2020 will be a day that will stick in your mind for a long time because that's the day you made your first cap for England against Italy I think the progression that you made I mean you're talking about COVID messing your head up try and work out what the Autumn Nations Cup versus Six Nations last year to this year Six Nations <laughs> like it's all over the place but your progression into that England squad um, you know when the England squads are announced now touch, touch wood here it's never a surprise now that your name's in there and I think that's a really good place for you to be because there's expectation but there's there is credit in the bank now for what you've done I think the, the aspect of this I'm interested to to lean on to begin with Ollie is that the the jump for for you from premiership rugby which I think it would be fair to say you were you were becoming uh, you were becoming comfortable playing in um to jump to that international level, how did you find that? How did you find the speed, the physicality? Maybe you'll surprise us all and say there, there isn't a huge amount of difference or, or maybe you, you'll be able to expand on some of the aspects that you think there is a big difference. Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference for me was the intensity of training. Um, I think how much emphasis was on that was what prepped us to perform on the weekend. Um, I think that's what kind of kind of I took my biggest learnings from over the autumn um, yeah. was how how much boys gave to training, how much they prepped for training, how they recovered from training, everything 
in terms of being a true professional, I guess, um, is the biggest learnings I took from my first my first ever involvement with England. Um, and I guess obviously being involved in some of the games, the the intensity and the speed of things is is a lot quicker. But I think the level of contact and stuff like that is is very similar to the Premiership. Um, I guess the the opportunities you get in the game can vary depending on how a game um, is played. I guess the Test match rugby it's it's a bit different because you're playing to win a game you want. Yeah, and it's very much played in a very pragmatic in a way sort of fashion. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to to put it. It's not as loose as sometimes Premiership games can be, um, and you stick to the system. You stick to to what what we've been planning all week. Um, and you give it all you can, I guess, for for your for your country. Um, and I think, yeah, it, w- it was tough, and it was a big, a big, a big change for me. Um, and there's a lot of things I needed to change about myself in terms of the way I trained, like my physique, everything. Um, okay, so go into go into some of that then, because that'll be interesting for people, not just people for me to hear. What are some of the things that you had to reflect on as maybe having been acceptable in a Premiership standard, but not acceptable in an international standard? So I remember going in the first the first like week and obviously you go in and then you do all your testing, your skin folds um, and everything like that. And then for me, like being at Worcester, I'd always been around like 80. I think my other best, my best ever at Worcester was like 78 mils, which for me, like I was always like, oh, surely that's like fine. Like I'm match fit. I can play like I'm doing well at the moment. Like why would I need to lose weight or lose, lose skin folds? And then the more I was at uh, that first week in camp, I remember having my, my skin folds done and I was probably high eighties, almost 90. And I completely like not been doing my skin folds for like a regular period. And I was probably a bit heavy. I was probably about 104 kg, 104 kg I was playing on. So for me, I was like, oh, well, I've just been selected for, for England playing the way I've been playing. Like, why do I need to lose weight? And then after a week's worth of training uh, international level, I kind of, came to grips with as to why I needed to lose that weight. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, the big focus for me over that autumn was basically getting my, my skin folds down, um, uh, losing, losing the baby fat, um, less so baby anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, lose, uh, losing a bit of timber, uh, and kind of get myself in more of a, a professional, um, kind of shape and one which I could really push on at, at the international stage. And I bought into it completely. Um, I get they gave me like a little meal plan and stuff and I really focused on it because uh, I knew it was a big thing for me and a big thing for my career if I wanted to stay on the international level. Um, and yeah, I guess I came out of it going in at 89, 90 mils and left at about 68, 70. So losing that, amount of, losing that amount of um, mils in, in a, I guess, a short period of time was, was tough. Uh, but it was something that I kind of knew it just, it was a given. It was something I had to do if I want, if I wanted to, to stay there. Um, so that was a big thing for me. Yeah. So if we, I mean, if for, for the people who, who aren't involved in professional environments, I think the, the term mills is, is it's like millimeters. So you, you get measured in eight sites of your body. It's a way of measuring body fat effectively. So you get measured in eight sites of your, all over your body. So just picture a professional, just picture a front rower has, they have to stand in their boxers and they get kind of scratched on with pen. And then they take these calipers out and they pinch the fat that sits on your body it, <laughs> and they total up that number and it gives you a to a number so i think you know 
80s to 90s would be good for any front rower but if you are a front rower you're probably tilting slightly over the hundreds and basically it's a way of them measuring and, and gathering information on, on your body weight just for anyone who doesn't understand those terms so I think it's it's a, it was an important transition for you your your physique when you came back was was completely different you just love walking around the change room with your top off like tensing your abs it was a bit weird. <laughs> bit of a stitch up there but um so definitely definitely a big progression for you i think if we touch on right we t- let's touch on the most recent most recent six nations right obviously aspects of it um frustrating for england frustrating for you we have to acknowledge that the the first couple of games you played were challenging in the way the games took and unfolded um, but your way, your ability to again show resilience in a different way from your injury, but from the resilience of being involved in a squad to not being involved in a squad, not losing your head and having a patty as you described it as earlier, knuckling down, working hard, and then getting yourself involved in some of the games towards the end of the Six Nations. I think um, let's discuss that as a as a whole because tied in with the the rugby performance aspects of it, you're also stuck in a bubble, which is which is a difficult bubble to be involved in too, like psychologically. So can you give us some insight on those kind of two factors? Yeah, so I guess I'll touch on the bubble to start with. I guess it was quite an intense, um, it was an intense campaign because it was something that we'd never done done before. Because even in the autumn, the I guess the restrictions at the time weren't as, weren't as, what's the word I'm looking for? Strict? They weren't as strict. Yeah, the the conditions and environment wasn't as strict as it was um, in the Six Nations. Like mm-hmm. we had to be really diligent with how we conducted ourselves in terms of being in certain areas for meetings, spacing ourselves out, like at dinner being separated a bit more, not being able to like go into each other's rooms, and just like socialize kind of outside of on the training field was was a challenge. But I think it's one that we as a team took really good learnings from. Um, but yeah, it was, there was a lot of time spent, uh, on your own. Um, and I guess it was kind of, it was good to kind of find ways to do different things. Like for me, like I kind of, I gamed a fair bit. Um, I took my, my PlayStation and stuff with me to camp. So quite a lot of the boys were, were flying on Call of Duty and getting their, getting their gaming hours up. I was going to say you spent a fair bit of time in the Gulag, did you? Yeah, I spent a, a fair bit of time in the gulag, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a lot of my time was spent doing that. Um, and then I guess a lot of the other time was just because I had so much time, I was able to do so many different things. And I guess one of the biggest things was the recovery side of things. Yeah, um, I could have a real time to focus on that because I had so much free time in, in evenings um and throughout the day there was periods where i could just go and do other stuff um go and do some form of stretching go and see the physio do some extra mobility or do some do some get some soft tissue i could do some other uh, anything basically to try and progress my body my i guess on the whole becoming a better professional Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a big learning I took from the Six Nations. And I think it's been, I guess that's been the biggest thing in being involved with England is all the learnings I've taken. Um, I think they've been huge for me as a player. Um, and then I guess touching on in terms of the, the frustration with not playing as much, I think it's one of those things where everyone in that team could 
play for England, otherwise you wouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, and obviously it was it was frustrated after the first game to kind of be be dropped from the squad. Um, it was a conversation I I had with Eddie, um, and it was one of those where he wanted to go with a certain way of playing with a certain team, um, and there's no it's not my place to to question that because the reasons he gave to me were 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 valid reasons, and I think it's one of those things where you don't ask questions in that in that type no. of way. Like if you're not selected, you'll be given your reason as to why you're not selected and you take it in one way or either use it as a motivational factor to kind of be like, right, I really need to push on now if I want to be involved in the rest of the games. I need to do this. I need to do that. Or you can take it another way and be like, oh, I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm not playing. I can sulk about it. I can not, not train as hard. I can sap about it. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really any of that for I think for any any players or especially not myself, um, and I guess that again touches on the social media side of things. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of comments and there's a lot of people talking. And for us as a team, we we wanted to ignore that. We didn't want to get drawn into our oh, this person said that this person said this and let it affect us in any way because that would only break us as a team. It wouldn't bring us closer together. Um, so the biggest thing for us was kind of staying, staying connected as a team, and and really pushing to stay together as much as we can because it was tough. Like being in a bubble, like there's only us, there's no one else. Mm. Um, so we need to be, I guess, a, a small family. We all we need to be able to lean on each other when when we're struggling, uh, and yeah. we need to be able to lean on each other when things are going well. Um, so yeah, it was frustrating, of course, because obviously you want to play for your country, you want to be playing, you want to be playing um, international games. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't turn out for that uh, for me. Um, obviously, I didn't get selected for the Italy game. I wasn't selected for the Wales game. Um, so I just took it as I need to keep getting better. Um, I need to keep working on my my skin folds. Still was something that I was still working on. Um, I wanted to keep getting better in that area. Um, my rugby side of things, my skills and my gym was something I was pushing on each week. Um, and then I guess it led into me getting selected into the squad for the France game. I uh, came on at the end for 10 minutes or so. Um, and then obviously leading into the last game, I managed to get a start down to an injury. Um, last minute, I ended up starting instead of being on the bench. Um, so yeah, it was, it was one of those things where I kind of, I tried to take the opportunity when I could get it. And when I didn't, I didn't look at it in a bad way. I just saw it as another opportunity to get better. Um, yeah. and I think that's the, the best way to describe it. Yeah, no, I think you speak on it really well. I think the, the reflection that you have, the maturity you have for your age is, is, is great. I think one of the things is interesting. You mentioned that whole social media vibe and obviously it would have been difficult for you not to, it, it was, it would have been easier for you to jump on the bandwagon and do that whole uh, pity me card that the, cause the social media was busting about like, how can you drop him? He didn't, he didn't touch the ball until the 50th minute, blah, blah, all that rubbish that, um, people are allowed to have an opinion on, right? It would have been easy for you to, to let that feed your ability to be a victim, but you didn't. You worked hard. You put your head down. You got better every day. Um, and I think off the back of that, the social media again strikes with people calling for like Eddie Jones' head, which seems like a massive knee-jerk reaction to me because his win percentage is still considerably higher than any other England coach. So for the people out there, 
I, I know you've got a good relationship with Eddie um, from the way that you, you speak. He's, he's hard on you, but he he's fair, but he's got good character and you have, you have a bit of a chuckle with each other. Can you give us any insight into what it's like working with him? Um, I think the easiest way to describe it is he always challenges you to be better. Um, he's always pushing you to find that extra 1%. Um, yeah. And it doesn't always mean he'll tell you how to get there. It just means that you need to find it within yourself to keep pushing yourself to be better. Because I think the one thing he knows is that he he creates an environment where we're always pushing to, to get better. No one ever is settled whether you've got 100 caps or whether you've got one cap. It doesn't make a difference. Everyone is there to get better. Um, and he drives that and really really challenges us as a team um, to be better um, as a team and as individuals um, and I think when he challenges us it's also you have to take ownership of that as well um, it's not there he's not going to baby feed you not going to tell you yeah. have to do this this and that um, he wants you to, to do it for yourself and do it to become the best player that you can be not do it and pay lip service to it and just be like oh, okay he's told me I need to do this I need to do that but really push to, to be the best version of yourself um, and to be the best addition you can be for the team. And that could be in training, that could be in a game, that could be in around around the hotel, it could be anything. Um, but working with him has been one of the, it's been a, a great experience for me. Um, he's really pushed me to, to be the best that I can be and to keep pushing to be better. Um, and I, I've, I can only like be appreciative of that um, yeah. because I wouldn't be in a position I would be in now if it wasn't for him. So, Yeah, absolutely. I think that that definitely resonates with um, the message that you hear a lot of people talking about the environment. When you're in the environment, it's different to how people perceive it or how people want to perceive it, probably more importantly. Let's move on from the England chat and let's move to Lions, right? So I'm going to save you the embarrassment by telling you that I think you might go as a boulder, right? But if we if we take you out of it completely, I I would put if I was allowed to, I would put a small fortune on you going on one eventually. Okay, so let's just take you out of this one just for the time being because it's difficult for you to speak on it, and I appreciate that. But if Ollie Lawrence wasn't a player, who would you pick in your backline for this Lions tour? I'm more interested in the centres, but who would you pick in that from 9 to 15? I appreciate I've sprung this on you slightly, but I'll save you from having to name 1 to 8 because I know you don't know who plays where and what position does what, right? But go from 9 to 15 and tell me who you think Gatlin will pick as his starting Lions back line. Um, this is a tricky one, really. Um, I don't want to be biased at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think I think based off um, experience and the way that um, he drives standards throughout training, throughout meetings, throughout everything, I think Ben Youngs would be um, the out-and-out starter as as nine um, for yeah. the Lions. Um, I think 10 is probably one of the most interesting things because it depends on whether he goes with a 10-12 split. Um, but I think the way the way Faz conducts himself, leads things and and again, drive standards, I think it'd be very hard not to select him as the starting 10. I understand people have their opinions um, on the fact that they're not in the premiership and haven't been playing as many games, but I think that that has no that has no say on someone who has over 90 caps for England and has led the yeah. team to a lot of success to a World Cup final. Um, 
But it'd be also interesting to see someone like Finn Russell um, at 10 as well. Um, he's really come into his own, obviously, over the last couple of years and now back in the Scotland mix. He'd be good fun um, to play with, he, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think he'd, he'd like to throw the ball around a bit, which would, yeah. which would be fun. And um, But like I said, I think I think for me, it would be Faz at number 10. Yep. Um, and then centres, I think it's um, it's an interesting one. But I think for me, I if I'm going to, <laughs> with the way I would play, I'd probably go with uh, Jonathan Davis and Henshaw in the midfield. Um, I think it gives, I know Jonathan Davis played a bit more at 13 than at 12 over his career, uh, but I think he's, with his experience, um, I think he would be a good a good inside centre to have there. And I think Henshaw had an unbelievable Six Nations um, and really played, um, played probably one of the best out of all the centres that played in the um, in the competition. So I think he would, he would be my 13. Um, my Wingers, um, again, I don't want to be too biased here, um, but I think um, it's it's very it's very difficult for me to justify, not to justify it because I think he's he sh- in my opinion should be the starting Lions winger, but the way Anthony Watson conducts himself throughout every single training week, throughout every single day and all the small things he does that no one sees unless you're involved in those camps, um, it wouldn't even be a question as to whether you'd be starting him. Um, he's he's overcome a lot of injuries, um, some serious injuries with his Achilles, and he drives things really well. Um, and he's a true professional with everything that he does. Yeah. Um, so for me, he would be on one wing. Um, and then on the other wing, I think it's tough because you've got, there's so many. Like, I, I do sympathise with you. They're, 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 you could name five backlines, and I know I've, yeah. I've put you on the spot, but just go with your instinct on this. People won't hate you, don't worry. But if you pick two English players, I might hate you. <laughs> I think to mix it up a bit, just to add a bit of, maybe a bit of, based on statistics, I'd probably I'd probably choose Duan van der Merber uh, from Scotland. Um, I think if you look at his stats from the Six Nations, they kind of speak for themselves. I think if you also look at someone like Lewis Rizamit, uh, he's kind of had an unbelievable campaign yep. and his start to international rugby. So, and he, he's another one that is, it would be very hard to ignore. And there's a lot of other wingers like, again, Johnny May, the stuff he's offered um, to England over the years and the way he is as a professional athlete is yep. another one, which is tough. Like it's very hard to, to, to name just one. Um, and then, my starting probably uh, again. Sorry, I've completely even. Name. <laughs> Don't worry, Josh okay. Adams. I know, I know, Josh I know. Adams is, well, like the way, like there's so many wingers. Like, like Jadzi is an unbelievable player, and he's played so well over the last, like since he came onto the international scene. Like I know, I, I know. Worcester when <laughs> he first played. I've stitched you up a bit. Like, I have stitched you up a bit here, so right? Difficult. It is difficult. So let's go with one of the six wingers that you named, right? <laughs> give me, give me okay. your fullback. Okay, so give me your fullback. If I had to choose four, I'd go between Duan, Duan, uh, Jadzi, Zamet, and um, Johnny. And then as fifteen, I think for me, like he's probably one of the best fifteens um, in the world, in my opinion, uh, and that'd be Stuart Hogg. Yeah. Um, I think the way that he he plays and his acceleration and his feet um, and his 
spirals are spiral who doesn't love uh, a spiral? I've never seen I've never seen the most consistent spirals in my life. It's unbelievable. I, I appreciate a spiral more than most, but I do love it when he puts that ball on the tilt, and I'm like, he's about to spiral this, and then he sends it. I'm just bring Runa Nogara back. I love uh, it. I, honestly, I wish I could do them, but I actually just I can't. Like I'd probably get one out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but that one it'd be good enough to bring you back. Okay, so that's yeah, that's, that's your lions. That's your lions backline done within four minutes of being asked. I gave you no heads up about that, and that was intentional. Okay, last topic, Ollie, because I appreciate you've got a life to live, and people are going to start to move on. Um, this is an important topic for us to round off with, all right? And it's one that I know you're very, very, very passionate about, and it's important that we do address it when we have the platform that we do here. Okay, so the Black Lives Matter movement is something that was in huge amount of interest throughout the uh the premiership restart with um the taking a knee and the t-shirts in the warm-up i think the issue with people not being allowed into the stadiums at the moment is that they can't see that you're continuing to wear your t-shirt for every warm-up which i know is, is important for you to do as a person can you just give us some insight into you know apart from the obvious reasons as to why it's important just your insight into you know why you think that was so important that we did it and um, how you think the it will have helped in any way if it did um, and kind of why you continue to wear that before we play games um, I think it was such a big thing for me because I think the importance of it at the time um, and in general I think people really need to be aware of it I think um, it kind of been brushed under the carpet for, for a very long time and I think it finally came to surface um, over the, the course of the last 12 months um, and for me, like obviously being being involved in England, like we had the opportunity to take a knee before the game. Um, but back in the Premiership, we don't. Um, and I think being back at my club, I think it's important for me to continue to keep supporting that. Um, it's just to show like that rugby is against racism. Um, I'm not trying to take the attention of anyone by taking a knee before a game or or speaking in the press about it. Like it's just for me. It's a non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, it's something that I will continue to do for as for as long as I can, um, and it's something that I think is really important. That it's not black lives just do matter. I think it's 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 a clear statement that racism in general um, isn't tolerated and shouldn't be tolerated in any form of life, uh, whether that's rugby, whether that's in the office place, whether that's just in 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 general life. Like I just don't. It shouldn't be acceptable. And I think. Me wearing that is a small statement, but something that shows that I clearly believe in it. I think people, if they're going to zoom in on a TV and see that, I think it's just a reminder that that's where we stand as as a, as, as a union um, with rugby against racism. And I think it's an important thing that people are aware of. And it's something that I, I, I really support um, and will continue to. Yeah, I know you're very passionate about it. You've got my full backing um, and I, I love your ability to be strong enough to show those things that you feel and you care about. So um, fair play to you. Listen, Ollie, I want to just take a quick second to say a huge thank you for jumping on. I know we, we see each other every day anyway, but this was nice. We got to chat about some aspects of your career, your thoughts, your beliefs, your experiences, you know, in a way that we probably don't, we probably don't do enough. And I think people who listen to this will find it so interesting because like I said earlier, you, Ollie Lawrence, the rugby player is one thing, but Ollie Lawrence is the person is a different kettle of fish. And uh, I think people will really appreciate the insight that you've given. So a big thank you, mate. Cheers, man. Appreciate you having me on. It was um, it was a pleasure. Uh, 
Um, and hopefully I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, we, we will see each other tomorrow. <laughs> all right, thanks, Ollie. All the best. <laughs> Cheers, man.